0: Josh, your role may be the most important person in any organization running pricing uh, across companies. So you, you're the SVP of pricing for JB Hunt, pricing and finance for JB Hunt. You have a critical role in the business of setting, you know, determining how the revenue sort of shapes up in terms of how you sort of approach pricing. What is the current sort of orientation that you guys have right now in terms of the current climate?
1: It's a good question. Um, we talk about that quite often, and, and I lead our pricing for our highway segments, um, not not intermodal, and, and so it's a different conversation. But you know, in we have an asset space inside highway, and we have a brokerage space, which those are uniquely different as well. Um, we, we've been watching carrier rates um, for the past several months. We we haven't seen carrier rates change, but they haven't really increased either. So. We've been in a market that we've been in a wild market and I don't have to tell the audience that we, we, we started, um, really 2020 as we were coming into 2020. And you know this, Craig, there, there's natural cycles in, in the, in the truckload space. And we were already on our way to a natural, natural cycle of upward, um, rates uh, and, and imbalances of supply and demand. And then COVID happened, right? And we don't have to rehash COVID, but. COVID stopped everything. And then after COVID stopped everything, there was a dramatic increase, whether through stimulus, stimulus and, um, shutdowns and whatnot, there was a great, uh, demand for products. Right. And so we went through the most volatile upward swing in the market and now it's reversed. And now we've seen the most volatile downswing we've ever experienced. And so it's really trying times to try to understand what's going on. Um, You know, we're 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 thinking. Okay, maybe we're at a bottom in rates. We're not um, anticipating any specific timing. We still have not seen significant supply exit. Um, I think if you look at the rejection rates and OTRI, which uh, is a great metric for that. I mean, they haven't moved. Um, They're at three percent and haven't moved for six months. Um, So we're we're supply needs to exit at these demand levels for rates to move. we don't feel like they can go much lower based on the cost basis, um, but it's just a matter of when. And and frankly, we don't we don't know.
0: And you're using the rejection rate data as a sort of understanding of the balance of supply and demand. Is that how you guys think of it? Yes. And it's like, I mean, there's a
1: couple of metrics out there, but it's a great one. that We think of it as it is probably one of the best at uh, measuring. Is there enough capacity out there to accept the
0: tenders? Whatever tender level it might be, right? But yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because like volume is a conversation that a lot of folks focus on. But, and I said this yesterday, is oftentimes carriers and just participants in the market will determine how whether or not we're in an expansionary sort of environment or contraction based on how their experience is. And I think you talk to any transportation provider, or I shouldn't say any, most transportation providers in this space, it feels like we're in a contracting market. Now, the volume data is suggest slightly uh, differently. But there is this sort of sense of an overcapacity situation that take, unfortunately takes a, a lot longer to sort of turn out.
1: It does take a lot longer. And uh, whether you call it stubborn or, you know, if you go back again to this last period, um, carriers made record profits per mile. I don't know if they made record profits, but they made record profits per mile. Um, and if they they've built up a little more cushion, they have time to kind of work through that. And it seems like it's been... It may seem like a stubborn cycle, but I guess if you look at the timing, it's still kind of in line with, hey, what's a normal cycle look like? I think we're all just dealing with um, two things. One, um, inflation has been a big headline in the U.S. economy now for several years, and and we were not immune to that. There was inflationary cost to run a truck. Uh, Costs are up. You know, you look at the ATRI, which is an independent data source. Costs are up from 2019, anywhere from 20 to 30 percent. So we we have faced, uh, and carriers have faced inflationary costs. Um, I think with with that, you saw record profits per mile, but you built up your cost basis, and now rates are back down to what the 19 levels. Spot rates are certainly are back there. Yeah. Um, spot rates are back
0: down. Contract rates. And you think about the 20 to 30 percent. Yeah. increase that you talked about, and we take fuel out of that equation, you know, we estimated it's about 30 cents a mile. Um, if we're back to 2019 levels in spot, that means, you know, and I think one of the major banks wrote this, is that practically every mile, uh, or on average, every mile that a, a truck drives is actually a loss. I mean, it's a slow bleed out, right? Yep. There's like the cash flow, ele- you're a finance guy, you'll appreciate this. There's a cash flow element of the business, and then there's a cost element, which are oftentimes not timed. Uh, on the same sort of cycle. So you can, from a cash flow basis, you can sort of slowly bleed out, um, which is really what a lot, of, a lot of what's happening. They're losing money on a per mile basis, but they're also generating cash flow. It's just that the truck is, is adding miles, the truck payment is coming out monthly, the insurance- They're just not paying themselves, year. basically. And they're not paying themselves yeah. a salary or, yeah. or any type of compensation or proper market compensation. So it is interesting. Um, have you guys gone back in history, Josh, from your perspective and has sort of compared this to any cycle and said, this feels like, you know, we at one point in time, this cycle is very similar. Or are you looking at this cycle and saying this is a completely new sort of different cycle that we haven't seen before? I think we, we tried to compare it to
1: what the last one was 19-ish. And then there was one before that 2016, 15, yeah. 15 16 time frame. Again, if you look at it and you chart it out, the 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 duration and the timing is very similar. Again, if, if you chart rates or if you chart carrier spot rates, is probably the best one. You just see a dramatic change in what is the peak and what is the trough, and that's been the most interesting thing: is how high rates got on the carrier spot market and uh, how much, and the gap between those two is. I don't. I'm I'm averaging and guessing here, but 3X what the difference with the peak and trough. And I think it's just difficult to plan and navigate in a volatile market like that. I think that's what what we're dealing with. Is it lower for longer? Is that sort of the orientation that you guys have right now? Um, I think that all depends on the customer, the consumer. And and that's the crystal ball I don't know anything about. Um, You know, If if there's a catalyst for the consumer or there's not um, the opposite catalyst for consumer in 24, I don't think it's going to be lower for longer. I think it's going to be a natural... Um, you're going to see supply exit and you're going to see rates not dramatically increase, but carrier spot rates start to increase. Everybody keeps pushing that out. I mean, if you talk to everybody last year, it was first half of 23, and then it was second half of 23, then it was first half of 24. I think you're starting to hear second half of 24. You know, it, there's that typical 12 to 18 months, and we're in months
0: 15. It, well, we actually, I mean, it depends on when you count it, right? Yeah. I mean, you guys were... Um, because you're bigger, you're more insulated. One of the things that I always find interesting, um, and you know, J.B. Hunt being the largest North America surface provider overall, and have an incredibly diversified business of all aspects of it. One of the things I've always found interesting about this business is that the larger companies are often, they see the cycle, sort of the last in first out of a down cycle. And, and, and J.B. Hunt in particular, because of your highly diverse revenue base and intermodal provides a lot of insulation to your core business. Um, one thing I always find fascinating is how the larger companies often are later into the cycle to see a downturn and often earlier in the cycle to see an upturn. Um, and, and so it's, it's interesting. Where do we call the start of the freight recession? This has been debated heavily on LinkedIn uh, uh, as I've been the recipient of some of those posts. Bloodbath. Um, yeah, about bloodbath, when, bloodbath. when was the actual born-on date of the freight recession. You know, I go back to when we, when, we, when we wrote the first article, the bloodbath article that has created a lot of sort of, you know, emotion in this industry. Uh, would have been March of last year. And if we sort of take the freight recession article we did two weeks after that, that would have been the end of Q1. So for me, that's when sort of the starting, fundamental start of the freight recession. It obviously didn't hit. Because Q1 of although, 23? Of 22. 22, Sorry. okay. so if I said 23. <clears throat> no. It was a late night, so. Yeah. Um, but you go back and look at that. We're 18 months into a down cycle. If you, um, the, the question is, how much longer do we have? And I think the big gap or the big question we have to answer is, how, much, how long would this capacity? You said something that I want to sort of pull back for a second. You made the comment, if, if there is not a stimulus in the consumer, or worse, if it's the opposite of a stimulus, in other words, a a significant contraction in consumer activity, then things can get better faster, and I think what you're actually saying is there would be a massive purge really quickly if I'm hearing correctly or interpreting what you're saying where because the slowdown would be pretty sharp or a, a sharp for slowdown would cause a lot of capacity to leave the market is that is yeah that I think there? I'm more saying that you
1: know capacity is exiting and will slowly exit uh which will start to balance mm-hmm. if if there is I'm not saying demand has to improve, but if there's something that happens that deteriorates demand even worse, then it, the supply exiting really won't matter. Yeah. And I think there's still concern that that could happen. I'm, an, I'm not an economist, but there's a lot of unknowns right now in, in how healthy is the consumer. You read a lot of reports. We're piling up debt. Are we not piling up debt? Did we get rid of our savings? Do we still yeah. have savings? Um, so there is that unknown. Is Can the consumer weaken? And if the consumer weakens, really, if supply exits, I don't know that. Rates will change that much, and it could be lower for longer. If it's normal, I do think it. Um, I do think it might be more of a normal cycle, maybe
0: extended a couple months, depending on where you start it. So bid cycles, kicked off and we're in sort of the midst of the bid cycle. How are you guys thinking about next year's bid cycle? Are you are you are you going in aggressive? Are you thinking, hey, we're going to fight for share? Uh, we, we have to protect what we have in this bid cycle, and we know that rates are going to be on the debt, we're gonna to have to give some concessions. Um, how are you guys thinking about sort of orienting yourself? Yeah, we're really just trying
1: to, um, you know, our focus in bids is, is starting with the customer and really what's the customer's strategy and what's our strategy for the customer. <clears throat> We'd like to be pretty clear on here, here's what, you know, if it's a 12 month cycle, if it's a six month cycle, um, it's really about where you start and hey, are we pricing it? And um, we're talking about brokerage at this point. You know, we're gonna start with, we think the carrier market's here and we want to provide service for a six-month time frame with, with this rate level. Um, really having a discussion with the customer saying, you know, what, what, what is more beneficial to you uh, and where can we play a role in that? It's really hard to guess what the rate is. We know what the rate is right now. That's, that's what we know. Um, obviously, we could do math and say the rate's up 5%. What would that be? We don't know if the rate's up 5%. So that becomes the guessing game. At the end of the day, you find out through your normal price discovery process. It's, you have several rounds of a bid. How competitive were you? Were you not competitive? And that's really where you discover price. And it almost doesn't matter what you think the market's going to do, if that makes sense. It's
0: a bid cycle. It's the, you know, get the bid, figure out where you're going to be. It is interesting. I think you guys have an enormous amount of advantages um, because you you have so many assets, you have so many resources. It gives you a lot of advantages of, of, you're going to be, you're going to participate in these rounds, uh, simply because you guys have so much um, yeah. A, history, and B, resources that mm-hmm. shippers are going to prioritize. Mm-hmm. What are you thinking in terms of, you know, we had a conversation, gosh, I don't know, 18 months ago uh, when we were flying back to Arkansas, you and I, and you had made a comment to me that has sort of stuck with me, is that every year for an asset, we're talking about a truckload for a higher market, every year there's this sort of reconfiguration of a network for an asset-based carrier. So 40%, I think, was the number that you shared with me, and this is, cons- this is a cons- uh, sort of a, a consensus among other asset carriers. It's not unique to J.B. Hunt. But every single year you do this bid process, and 40% of your network turns over. And while on the surface that doesn't sound bad, if you're a brokerage business, you don't really care, right? Because it's just, hey, we're not, we're no longer serving Chicago, we're serving, or Chicago to Dallas, we're serving Atlanta to Dallas. Like, Who cares? It's another rate. But for an asset-based carrier that has hired drivers on lanes, that has run a network, is when you remove that forty percent, this turnover, it actually doesn't just hurt that one lane. It actually impacts the unit economics of the entire network. Can you unpack that a bit? Yeah, you know,
1: it's uh, it's a in in the transactional highway space, um, so really non-dedicated. and non-intermodal because intermodal is much more dense and, and, and a fixed network. Re- I mean, your network—it's um, a jump ball every year. Yeah, uh, every year, and I think it's like this to your point for every carrier, and it, it is difficult to build efficiencies. I mean, frankly, that's—I think that's why. Um, <clears throat> obviously, we have you know the, the the largest dedicated provider in the United States. I think that's why dedicated became such a big portion of the transportation market. I, th- I mean, dedicated was a fairly small segment of the business or the industry 20 years ago. Dedicated is in fact the most efficient and best way um, to you're manage- You're
0: referring to asset-based dedicated, which is, because yes. brokerage use the same term. And it's, yeah, it's a bit different. routing guide, but- Yeah, you're talking about the fact that I, I have a truck almost as in a, I'm amortizing that truck. It's almost like I'm leasing. It's a wet lease yeah. Essentially, yeah. to
1: the fleet. And it, it, it can be a very efficient op- option for a customer with great service levels. Um, but we, we will, when we think about same-store sales, you know, it, it could be anywhere. A, a asset truckload carrier may only do 20 to 40% of the exact same thing they did last year because it is a highly fragmented market, um, and everybody's capable of providing similar service. Mm-hmm. So it really is a jump ball, and you're re-optimizing your network every year, every day, every week, um, and you're trying to maintain balance and, 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 working with the shippers and through the bid cycle, but it, it becomes, uh, an exercise, not utility. I don't want to make it sound super <laughs> negative, but it is, you, you generate and you have teams that focus on just that. Cause there's that
0: much work that goes into optimizing your network. And what, so for folks that aren't familiar with it, cause I've, I've had this explanation on why that's bad for net cause like. On the surface, it doesn't sound as bad, as as impactful as it really is. But as an asset-based carrier, when you lose a lane simply because of price, what does that do to your, like, how does that impact the network? When we say about the network, why is it important to have a fixed, redundant network in place? Well, if you think about an asset space
1: or, let's call it a drop-level service, right, where I'm providing drop trailers at the shipper or at the receiver, I have equipment you have to balance, right? And so if I lose a lane from a a customer lane from um, Chicago to Atlanta, um, I had a commitment in Atlanta. Um, I had a commitment in Atlanta uh, for another customer to run from Atlanta to Dallas. And the minute you lose that inbound into Atlanta, you now have a service problem inside of Atlanta. So it's constantly trying to backfill. Um, You made a commitment to a customer in this lane, if you lose the inbound, now you're trying to find a backfield to say, I still have to service this customer in Atlanta. And that's, that's why. And brokerage, it's a little easier, right? Or live load. Um, obviously, you don't need that balance. Um, and you can go out to the large carrier market. And, and a broker, theoretically, I could have 1,000 loads a day out of Atlanta and J.B. Hunt and be fine. Right? I mean, obviously, yeah. I have a hard time finding capacity, but
0: I don't have to worry about balance of equipment. Yeah, it's not your. If you're a broker, it's not your problem. It's the carrier's problem. Exactly. And look, participating in broker freight, anyways, means that they're trying to find some opportunity, whether it's moving a truck to a more favorable market, you know, trying to maximize rate utilization. Like, there's a reason they're in the broker market. It's optional freight. Where contracted freight, you're committed. And what you're talking about is when there's turnover of those lanes, you not only have to think about the impact of that one truck, that one lane, but you've got to, like you said, you now have a service problem. You have one less truck going into Atlanta. And sometimes these these lanes can be, you know, five, ten loads a day in some cases, where now I have to sort of reconfigure five to ten trucks. And then then when I reconfigure that lane, now all of a sudden, let's say it's going from Chicago to Atlanta, that's what your lane, now I'm headed to Houston. I now have ten trucks headed to Houston because I, I was awarded that lane. i got to go find a shipper out of Houston to make that work. It just causes a lot of problems. One of the things that um, that you have done, we had Shaw... Here yesterday is you guys are working on index link contracts, which is a floating price against an index and a discount. It's the way you know trucking asset fleets buy fuel is some type of index link contract. Talk a little bit about that. Why that makes sense for JB Hunt? Yeah, um, we think it makes
1: um, a lot of sense for for a segment of our, of our business inside brokerage, right, where we're buying capacity on the swap market every day. Um, what index leak contract does is it's really the best thing about it is it's an easy button for the customer because i think there's really two main value streams for them one is uh it's 100 percent tender acceptance right so you know that i've got this load i can send it to jv hunt jv hunt's going to accept it we're not going to look to reject it we're not going to look at what the rate is and say hey can we make money or not like the typical spot um yeah. transaction is the second thing is is um you know we we had a We do have a product called Marketplace Direct where it's 100% tender acceptance, it's 100% visibility, it's a very high level of service. But really the rate mechanism of that was well, okay, you're just gonna pay cost plus the fee and you're gonna see how the cost works and you're gonna see all the offers on our platform. I think what index link contracts do is it it adds a little more skin in the game for the carrier because now we share in some of the basis risk of how we purchase. What the customer gets is, hey, I get 100% tender acceptance, I go to JV Hunt, whoever they choose to, to service the, the lane. I know I'm going to get the market rate. I know I'm going to get visibility and, and, and trust that I'm getting the market rate through, through the third party index. Yeah. Um, there's still things we got to work on, like the, the um, customers w- really want a rate up front. And so there's still some things we got to do to make sure they're not having to do manual work mm-hmm. inside their TMS and how do we connect that in real time. We like it because, again, uh, we can offer a high-level service. because We know the best service we can provide is when we can pay a carrier the spot market rate because we know we're going to get the absolute right piece of capacity. If you're having to manage um, purchasing on contract freight, I mean, you're still trying. You need to make money to pay your bills. You're still trying to find the right carrier that can provide the right service but the right economics. If you know that you can afford to pay the market rate every time, you're going to find the right truck. Yeah. So it's going to be the best service, and we have, obviously, data to prove that. So it's just the easy button. It's easy for them. It's easy for them to get it at the market rate. Um, and we'll, we'll provide all the visibility into how we purchase, even though they're still um, guaranteed, if you will, that, hey, I know through this third-party index link contract that I'm going to be paying what is representative of the market for that
0: particular day and for that particular lane. The advantage there is that the shipper knows who's getting the freight. They don't have to call and bid it. They don't have to call and get quotes. It's just, hey, I'm gonna tender all these loads over to JV Hunt where that easy button I think is a good description. Mm -hmm. And on your end, you get the volume, which is ultimately. And the bet for you is that you're buying far enough below the index price because of your purchasing power and your ability to do it that you're taking some level of risk in the transaction. But the advantage is, hey, I know I can buy better than the index, and, and therefore I can drive more volume, and that volume consistency is important. Is that a fair? That's very fair. So, well, Josh, I, I appreciate it. Unfortunately, we don't have a lot of uh, any more time, but I appreciate you coming up here and sharing your sort of thoughts on the bid season uh, next year, as well as uh, your experiences with indexing contracts. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. you so much.